Welcome, listeners. You're tuned in to the official podcast of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy. We're a public policy research organization and leadership community founded on the values of equality, freedom, and a more perfect union where the American dream is for everyone. Our namesake is the former Congressman Joseph Rainey, who was born enslaved and was the first Black American to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. We're a place that fosters dialogue on actionable solutions to America's challenges while amplifying the voices of women, minorities, and mavericks in public policymaking. To learn more about us, we hope you visit www.rainycenter.org. I'm Sarah Hunt, and I'm proud to be the CEO and president of the Rainy Center. Today on Policy for the People, we are so excited to have Dr. Monica Sharma join us for a conversation about her work and her vision and her life inspiration. Um, Dr. Sharma is a medical doctor and an epidemiologist of really global renown, although she's so gracious, she would never admit that to you. But she's worked all over the world uh, with the United Nations, and she's also the author of a remarkable book called Radical Transformational Leadership, which is about drawing on you know universal human values, things like compassion and equality, to draw more people into policy and government and community to change the world. And I'm so excited to have her because when I was starting the Rainey Center, I found this book to be so helpful. You know, at the Rainey Center, we're all about bringing more people to the table. You know, we work to advance freedom, equality, and a more perfect union where the American dream is for everyone. And we want to see more Americans feel ownership and engaged in their government and policy in their communities. And Dr. Sharma is, I think, one of the most thoughtful leaders in the world to talk about that at not only in this country, but at a global scale and during these trying times coming out of a pandemic, which, uh, you know, Dr. Sharma can share some wisdom with us about that coming out of this global pandemic, how we can come together as a country and as a globe to build a better path forward that includes everyone and creates dreams and opportunity for everyone. And uh, with that said, welcome Dr. Sharma to Policy for the People and the Rainey Center. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for inviting me. I am so appreciative of the values that the Rainey Center, under your guidance and the guidance of your group, of course, is standing on. Because for me, what you are bringing Fourth is actually narrowing the gap on value-based leadership. And so for me, when you use the word freedom and you use the word equality, the first thing I think of is how the word freedom means different things to different people. And so when you say freedom and equality, it's great. And, you know, one of the, the issues that we all must deal with when it's policy is how do we distinguish the English word freedom from choice and from preference? And too often, In this culture, we confuse that. But for me, freedom is a profound space of being, of who I am, of standing in values where nobody is left out. It's not an opinion. So freedom in Sanskrit, the word is mukti. You know, the closest word is liberation. And for me, it's it's so vital that the Rainy Center is about freedom at its essence. So freedom is freedom from bias, freedom from from attachments that create me and another. You know, like Rumi says, come and meet me in that field. 
where there is no each and other. And so for me, freedom, when I hear you say that, Sarah, I hear a profound space where I don't hold social biases, where I hold a freedom for everybody. And, and I would like to distinguish that word from preference. Should, should we have preference? Of course. I mean, we have preferences. Um, we have a preference of color, for example. And so what's your favorite color? Oh, I love the color blue. I always love, I love rainy center purple too. I've got three little nieces, so I'm very into pink. <laughs> I can't even choose a color. I think freedom is freedom to love all the colors. No, no. Freedom is liberation of the spirit. Preference is choice, you know. So for me, you know, we truly have a right to have preference. So it's great that you and I both love blue and we both love purple. So all I want to say is that too often in this country, you said, let's talk about COVID. So I'm going to go there. So for me, freedom is a fundamental space of caring for everybody. Freedom is when your well-being is tied to my well-being. And we use the word freedom as preference or choice. Should we have choice? Of course. If you like a particular kind of cereal, and I don't, you truly have choice. And how fortunate, Sarah, that you and I have choices. Then I come to the the positioning of wearing a mask during COVID. So we wear a mask and if I, we go, like you said, I've worked worldwide. There's so many cultures, especially in East Asia, where if I have a cold, I wear a mask so that you don't get my cold. Simple. I mean, there is no question. Children are trained to do that from childhood. So for me, I want to distinguish the essence of freedom in the way that the Rainer Center is talking about from the way freedom is used during uh, in common parlance. So for me, then let's get to COVID. I think COVID, I'll compare it with the HIV AIDS epidemic because there was a time in 2000 when it was the same questions. How do we get to test? There was no testing early on. How do we make sure everybody has access to testing? How do we make sure that that people are not infected. So we promoted the use of condoms because worldwide a lot of, you know, uh, transmission was through heterosexual sex. And so for me, COVID is about testing. It's about treatment. Who gets access to treatment as was an HIV AIDS? And then it was about a vaccine. Now, in for COVID, we have a vaccine. For HIV, we haven't got a vaccine yet. Did you see the news the other day that Moderna, using the mRNA that they used for the COVID vaccine, is having some success on an HIV vaccine? Well, um, it's the beginning. Let's say in ninety in two thousand, there was no vaccine, right? No, there wasn't. There wasn't. Yeah. yeah. I just think that's very interesting that one pandemic might lead to helping address another one yes. at such a clinical yes. level. Yes. And that brings me to the fact that this is not the last pandemic, right? So what have we learned from this? So when you look at my book and you you read the way in which we deal with, whether it's HIV, COVID, or the next pandemic, there will always be technical solutions. And there'll always be a couple of, you know, a percentage of people, a proportion who would say, this doesn't work for me. 
And so these are technical solutions. But technical solutions do not address some of the things that COVID has shown us. What COVID has shown us is that not everyone has access to treatment. Certain categories of people have greater access to treatment. And that has to do with wealth. And so that is not equality or equity. And so what COVID has shown us worldwide, whether that's in income poorer countries or in income rich countries, such as the US, it has revealed a pattern of social exclusion. And you can even call it economic exclusion. And the system doesn't respond the same way to everyone. And that is happening worldwide. So there is that dimension where technology must nest, must nest in, in equality for what we need. For example, those photographs, remember, Sarah, of people lining up for food in the early COVID days. And they have no food. There are people worldwide, 400,000 migrant labor in India were without food till people just stepped up. So what did COVID also do? They created opportunities for people who care to serve. And there has been heartwarming experiences in every single country, just as some who don't care, didn't care, but it also accentuated the beauty of the human who cared. And so people stepped up worldwide. I can talk about a group in India, young people who made it their work to, to put some of their money together and then got money and they fed 80,000 people. How great is that? That we step up, that we, we move beyond the boundaries of this is my NGO and that's your NGO. This is my institute and that's your institute. That we broke down those silos and those barriers. So for me, where did that come from? And I think that all these um, epidemics are an opportunity to systematically uh, contribute to society. That's what your institute is about. Your institute is not about tapping into all the good things that people do, nothing wrong with it, but to create the ecosystem of change. Policy is about creating the ecosystem of change. So there are tools and templates that can create the ecosystem of change. And that's what you were referring to. Oh, there's so much insight and wisdom in everything you've just said. I do think, you know, that distinction, the, the freedom of preference and choice is one thing that we do dwell on in this culture. But you're right. Freedom is a state of being. Freedom is so much more than what kind of sandwich you want at lunch or even who you might vote for, you know, having yeah. that choice. Uh, and what's interesting is that is part of the historical American cultural value system. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, it talks about freedom and equality and how we're innately free. And, you know, that is an aspect of freedom that is so critical for all Americans to understand and that, you know, the Rainey Center tries to facilitate conversations around. And you do create, and going to templates, uh, your book, again, it's really extraordinary. It's called Radical Transformational Leadership. And it is a completely different way of looking at change and being a leader. And you do have some great templates and directives and frameworks in that book 
What do you think is the most important one? Not to force you to choose, but if you're out there and you're talking to, say, young Monica, young Dr. Monica, or a young person, a teenager who is thinking about how they want to be a change agent in this world and how they can serve their community, you know, what, what are the tools? What are the templates? What's the most important one that you think they need to start with? So um, the book starts with that somewhere, and um, I'll talk about the principles behind this, and um, I'll, I'll share a story. Well, the most important template uh, for uh, both my personal as well as social transformation is what I call the conscious full-spectrum response model. And, you know, Sarah, when I started working and I was at the UN at that time, I didn't start working when I continued working. A group of uh, people from the business world, private sector came and offered their, their expertise to support the work I do, which was fantastic. And I said, you know, this is what I, I am doing. So they said, you know what, you should call it full spectrum because it is about my deepest self. It's about the way we think and design. And then it's about what we do. That's what it's about, really. So I went along and I was working in Vietnam at that time. I visited and they said, oh, you are from the U.S. military, is it? I said, no, I'm from I'm working at the U.N., They said, but the U.S. military has a full spectrum dominance program in space. I said, oh, no, no, no. This is called conscious full spectrum. So the word conscious is uh, the word intentional. You know, you are intentional, Sarah, about setting up the Reina Center. And I am intentional about radical transformational leadership. And I'll, I'll go into what that means because those words I used a lot. But the foundational piece on the, the we call it the fractal for large scale change. So the conscious full spectrum response model is the fractal for large scale change. What does that mean? A fractal is a word from physics. It means a pattern that itself. And, you know, so far when we've gone to scale, we have certain conventional models of scale. They are neither right nor wrong. They are just there. For example, if Starbucks or McDonald's wants to go to scale, you know you'll get the same product. There's a franchise, there's a standardized thing, and they scale that way. There's an economic model behind it. If we want to look at policy in education and we want to look at policy in health or in energy or in in justice, we have the same, we have a, a different pattern than McDonald's. What we have is a large number of institutions at the base because people go to those, such as large number of schools or clinics or courts or energy grids. But as we move to a different level, not everyone from high school will go to college So we have fewer number of colleges. Not everyone from college goes to university. And so we have even fewer universities. So how do we go to scale? The level of technology determines the way we structure that. And it's so for help. And then we have the third type, which is the, the reach, reach. So we confuse reach with results. So it, the internet 
our meshworks, our networks give us reach. But reach is not result. What you're working for, which is freedom and equality, requires a different type of scale. And the conscious full spectrum uh, response model is the foundation of that scale. It's the fractal for scale. And if there's one thing I would say to everybody, and it's in the book, is why is this so important? Because, Sarah, it combines three things in you and in me. So let's begin with that. What do you deeply care about, Sarah? You as an individual, not the Reina Center. Who are you? So let's work with that. And everybody else who's listening can work with that for themselves. What do you stand for? There are, there are a couple of things coming from a desert state, coming from New Mexico. I see so clearly the effects of water scarcity. And if you think about climate change and energy, which are areas where I have expertise, you know, climate change is water change is water scarcity. And what do we all need to live? We need water. We need clean water. We need potable water. And that to me is why energy is such a fundamental issue to everyone's life because we need water. And, you know, ironically, energy needs water too. We can't really produce energy without water. If you look at, you know, the technologies that we have. So I don't want the world to be Mad Max for, you know, I have two nephews and three nieces. I don't want the world to be Mad Max for them. And that's something, you know, of course, that all of us want. We want our families to have access to, to clean, drinkable water. And hopefully in a way that's, that's easy. Indoor plumbing is a marvelous adventure that I admire more every time I go camping. So, you know, it, so maybe, you know, plumbing and sewers aren't particularly exciting, but they perform such an incredible function for those of us who live in cultures and societies and communities that, or I should say communities where we're lucky enough to have access to good sewers and indoor plumbing. Not everyone does. There are still people who have to go out and walk to wells to get water in this world. So what I hear is that you hold a space of action through water, through environment, with a mindset that cares for everybody. That's what I'm hearing, you know, and it, it's this mindset. Tomorrow we say, you know what, I know you're an expert in climate change and water, but I'm going to take you to a space where you work, let's say, maybe for education or for prisons. What would you bring to that space, Sarah? You will bring the same caring, you know. And to me, the beauty of the template is knowing that depth in me and being able to use it for everybody, everywhere. Because the way you said about water, it isn't water for just your family. It's your family, but everyone, you said, right? Absolutely. And so... For me, that space is what this conscious full spectrum template activates. The space that's there in you, the thinking that looks at the interdependence, the interconnections that are invisible. You said it so beautifully, Sarah. Water is energy, energy is water. Water is us. We are mostly water. Yeah, mostly water, yes. And so when you can see the interconnections rather than see everything in silos, we call it an interdependent space. And that's the space that we are in. Monica, this reminds me of early in my career, 
I worked in criminal justice policy and I was doing research on the prison system in the state that I was working in. And I visited a lot of the prisons and healthcare costs were very expensive. And what I discovered, I was reviewing menus for the prison system. And I went to my boss and I said, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into the health situations that incarcerated persons have, but we're not feeding them very good food. Maybe they would be healthier if the food quality was better. And, And that's caring about the community, but not just a community, you know, the community of these citizens who are incarcerated, but also thinking about the broader community, you know, we're allocating resources as a society and the, in the state government, you know, maybe if we spend a little bit more here down the road, not only will people be healthier, the, you know, the cost of that healthcare might go down. So yes, things are interdependent uh, in that way. I think in ways that we often don't consider, you know, people do talk about water and climate, um, but I hear it more often about too much water about flooding and not, as much about the situation like we have in the American West right now, where I think close to 40% of counties in the American West right now today are in severe drought conditions. They've just shut off water to farmers in Klamath, the Colorado River for the first time in history um, or recorded history um, that, that we're aware of in modern times um, is, is very scarce. It's we're out of water. So, you know, it's not just about climate change. It's about love for our communities, our families, ourselves, and life itself. We need to develop, and I talk about this, we need to develop systems of energy that give life and quality of life without diminishing and without taking. And that taking life, and that is beyond climate change. That is beyond you know, that issue. That is beyond what type of energy we use. We could solve climate change right now with technologies that we have if we paid to deploy you know more nuclear energy for example or more carbon captured energy and those are important to getting to net zero as soon as possible but they're not enough for the long run because they do have externalities related to extraction and waste um, and risk that are concerning and we can, we can de- continue to innovate past the problem of climate change to energy that, that gives life without taking life. Yeah, we actually can have energy that gives life without taking life. Solar energy is one of them. By the way, we knew most of the solutions 50 years ago, Sarah. So that brings us to a very important policy issue. So what is it in human beings? And then the way that we are operating in the domain of what we call upstream, you know, policy. What is it that we know what's what's actually required uh, that we will not act on it? And we are so into looking after our individual needs that um, not needs, actually. Gandhi said it very beautifully. He said the world has everything for everyone's needs. It just doesn't have everything for everyone's greed. And so for me, that's a very potent statement because you brought up nutrition. If we used our resources wisely and we um, had nutrition wisely, which is good for our bodies, 
we would be able to feed with what we have twice the number of people on the planet. Then why is it that a billion people go to bed hungry? And before COVID, 22,000 people died in the world every single day, every single day because of malnutrition. And we don't notice it. We don't even think about it. And, and most of them were children. So to me, you know, we talk of everyone's children. We talk about this. So the basic question is, what is it in humans that we, we know we have knowledge, but we don't apply it because we see some kind of, of mechanism that, that sort of says, oh, this is not practical. This is not doable. The system is so big, but you know, a system has leverage points and there are human beings who've created that system. And we are, like Annie says, humans too. So Sarah, yes, the mindset that exploits the planet is the same mindset that exploits people. The mindset that cares for people is the same mindset that cares for the planet. It's reverence for life. And to me, that's a profound space. Caring for the environment is caring for life. And I think in in the same way, you know, caring for the economy, caring for our infrastructure, that's also caring for life. Of course. And you, you have to do all of it. You know, one of the reasons that, you know, people go hungry is simply infrastructure and how we get food from point A to point B. And it is surprising that we have not, um, as humans, been more capable of figuring out how to do that. Because there's, there's no need for it in the world that we have today with the technology that we have today, that anyone should be hungry or that anyone should uh, struggle to have water that they can drink. Absolutely, Sarah. So I would say, you know, going back to your foundational question, why is it that I say that the conscious full spectrum response model is the foundation? The policy and planning domain has been occupied with people of expertise, you know, who have expertise. Not that expertise is not important, it's vital, but expertise doesn't get the job done. What gets the job done is caring. And so for me, what's been what's been vital is to connect in a seamless way the the space within me, the caring I have for all of humanity with the strategies I design and the actions I take. And when we can have simple, not simplistic, simple ways of designing for deep change, large-scale change, then we have a way of engaging people differently. So right now, there's a, we say people are engaged, but they are not engaged in a way that they could be. They are not informed in that depth. And so it becomes one position. I believe this, or I believe that. This is my opinion. That's my preference. And we don't distinguish those spaces from spaces of really manifesting the greatness we have, the potential. So this work is about unleashing our full potential, the potential of my inner capacity. That means whether I was in prison, you talked about food at that time because you could see it. We actually see those connections. And, and so we, we, are, we don't have spaces where these connections are seen and action taken based on that. That is vital. The bridge from who I am to the world that I live in, which is external, how I think and what I do, 
And these templates and tools are the bridges between who I am, how I think, and what I do. I think what's so beautiful about your vision for leadership, about your book, about the way that you've conducted your life to bring change to so many communities is this understanding that each person carries something beautiful inside of them. I love how you like to talk about these universal values that we do see expressed across humanity and tapping into that to meet people where they are, to help them take action that, you know, brings uh, a better quality of life to not only themselves, but their neighbors. It's really extraordinary. And that's one of the things, you know, with the Rainey Center, you know, our action is frequently convening. It's having these conversations. It's helping people, policymakers, citizens, um, women, minorities, and mavericks, you know, all of us come to the table and bring a different perspective, bring different insights. You know, a lot of times working in Washington, D.C., in the policy world, you have people who are brilliant and well-educated, and they are these technical experts that we need. But the great insights often come, you know, for me and when I'm dealing with policy issues from when, hey, I had a conversation with, you know, someone, you know, maybe who's not a policy expert, who is an, you know, more of an everyday person, you know, trying to, you know, build a better life for themselves and their family. Um, but if you think about in, in this country about energy consumption and how women make a lot of the consumption choices for families, and you, you want to, you talk to, you go out and you, you know, like you talk to your friends who have families and they need to buy a new refrigerator or they need to buy a new car. Like what are, what are the things that they're thinking about in terms of making those purchases? You know, often they are thinking about a variety of things, how it fits in their life, how it affects the, the environment sometimes. And when you go to policymakers and you sit in a, a congressional committee hearing in DC, you'll look around and you'll see, well, there's not a whole lot of women here who are making these energy choices for their families, which people don't realize. Yes, buying a refrigerator is making an energy choice. You know, we, we make it easier. Sometimes we put like the energy star on appliances to show more energy efficient ones, but which is helpful if, you know, for folks, uh, as they go shopping for their their home appliances, but we're not really thinking about okay, you know, how does the design of a refrigerator not just affect energy efficiency, but how is it? How does that balance with what works for people's lives and their budgets? And when you start having conversations with that that everyday person, which I think is the wrong phrase to use, but with another person who is go out there living their life isn't a policy expert, isn't thinking about energy, but is making choices directly connected to those policies that the experts removed in DC are contemplating. You know, that's when you get real insights about the kind of, honestly, the little things that can be done to support people and to support um, improving our environmental quality while also bringing about quality of life. So, you know, Sarah, you brought in three very profound points. Firstly, this book and your work and mine is about everybody being a leader. That's 
fractal that will create a new sort of uh, representation and, and democracy, an informed representation, not just, you know, swinging with, with one position or another, something that really matters. And, and, and so for me, the big issue is not how small is a citizen's project. So that that to me is a yesterday question. Today's question is how strategic is it? When is it strategic? When every policymaker can be like every other person, awaken their decisions from who they are and what they care about and inform themselves with the latest technologies and not be, be um, you know, not become a partisan. And so for me, I think the next generation of democracies worldwide would be a democracies, not just in the US, where there is a greater level of information, both of policymakers, experts and people. And the, the information is going to be of different kinds. So we always acknowledge that is what the expert has, right? That is important, of course. And people need to have basic knowledge. But there is a different space beyond knowledge, and we call it understanding. And understanding is being able to see the pattern, to be able to see the uh, connecting the dots. And by the way, all human beings can connect the dots, not just policymakers. That's the beauty of the work we do. And the third is the inner capacities of people. That exists in everybody. It doesn't need a degree. It doesn't need a dollar sign behind, behind your name. So suddenly we have enough knowing, whether that's through neuroscience or psychology or application, because whatever I've written in the book, Sarah, I've applied it and it's worked. It's worked with millions of people, evidence-based, if that's what you want, want to say. So you bring up this point of how it is so vital that we create spaces and play, the playing field needs to be leveled. And it needs to be leveled based on the caring humans have for each other, whether I'm an expert, and some of the most beautiful quotations come from people like Einstein, I mean, about caring about everybody. And so for me, it is not true that science is value neutral. As a scientist, I can hold universal values and work with people. As a, a policymaker or expert, I could do the same. And so for me, knowledge and and that inner space of my my inner capacities very vital to connect all these three knowledge understanding and inner capacity because i'm all of that and no matter where you go sarah and where whether i'm a policymaker or a citizen here i would be able to do the same thing no awaken who i am to do what i need to do and i think all of us our policymakers in a way in our everyday lives. Yes. And when I think about, you know, policy for the people, policy for all of us, you know, awakening that in, in every citizen is so important. And it's incredible to see how you've done that in your career and the inspiration you've been to so many people like me. Um, I'm really grateful that you came on to, to talk to me about all of these ideas. What I love one of the things I love about you is you, you, and again, I've tried to make this practice in my life. You take big ideas and you take tough topics and you drill it down to make them accessible 
to as many people as possible in the way you express your thinking. You know, too often we get, you know, somebody like me who's been to graduate school, we like to just show off how smart we are. (laughs) And that doesn't, that's not necessarily communication. And you've modeled that so beautifully today and, you know, always, anytime I've seen you speak. But I want to ask you one question that I do ask everyone who, who comes on the podcast. And I you've, I, you've kind of answered it a little bit, but if there was advice that you would give to 14-year-old Monica, what would you tell her? You know, I find it hard to respond to that because I have four grandchildren who are that age, a little older. And I think um, I would do what I do with a grown-up because I work with young people as well, using exactly the same tools Making it more fun. I mean, you know, we run around the place. We don't do that when we are adults, but but we've worked with children. So what I would say to a child is what I would say to an adult. Find out what you deeply care about. So if I would look at, you know, if I look at what I care about, it's freedom as is not as choice or preference, but freedom as mukti, you know, liberation, the beauty that you brought up. I would ask that child, where would you like to, what would you like to change? And what would you then do about it? And that's what I would ask. I'm not sure I... I, as adults who've messed up the planet, should advise our young too much. <laughs> and and at the first time our granddaughter saw a story of stuff, she was 11. And she came and said to me, Mimi, what were you doing all these years that this has happened? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that was so cute. So I would create the platform for the young to unfold in the way they can. And and allow their passion to manifest, manifest for everybody, not just for their family, not only for their family, not only for their friends, because today's world is so full of, um, you know, when you say young, I can't help but look, you know, I saw the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, and I think of the influence social media and what we are doing to our young through that, the suicide rates that have gone up. So I would get them to anchor in who they are and what they care about. And to me, this is so important, Sarah, because what they are exposed to is, including the games they play, has so much violence in it, has so much commodification of the human being in it that I think we have a lot of responsibility first to ourselves as adults and and then shape that, you know, that space for them. To follow their passion, to know who they are as profound human beings, to shape it in life and have fun with it. Not like a burden, but the joy of service. Well, with that, I'm not sure that we could top that off with anything better than what you've just said. That's really uh, a great message. Uh, So everyone who's listening, find out what you care about and find yourself as a profound human being. I hope also all of you out there will plug into our work here at the Rainey Center by subscribing to our newsletter and following us on social media. Check out our website at www.rainycenter.org. And you can do those things uh, through our site, signing up for the newsletter and following our social media. Also, drop us a note if you've heard something you like today or you have any further questions. We'd certainly love to hear from you. 
From all of us here at Rainy Center, from the team, thank you for listening. And again, thank you to our speakers.